Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. This show is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awake, or I prefer the word awakening, people. There are over 280 of them now, so if you'd like to check out the archives and perhaps support our efforts uh, through a donation, go to batgap.com and explore. These interviews are also being live streamed these days. Most people watching this won't be watching it live, but if you'd like to watch future ones live and perhaps submit questions, go to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com and you'll see instructions on how to do that. So my guest today is Ellen Emmett. I'm just going to read a, a bio that Ellen sent in because it's a nice synopsis. It'll very concisely give you an overview of what Ellen is about. Ellen's deepest longing for the absolute was fulfilled when she met her teacher, Francis Lucille, whom I've interviewed on this show. In his presence over many years, she awakened to her true nature of peace and happiness through continuous and deepening glimpses. The process of aligning and stabilizing her life to and in this beautiful non-dual understanding has never ceased to unfold since then. As a child, Ellen was in love with movement and dance. My sister, by the way, she's been dancing all her life and she has all kinds of certification and training in yoga dance, which you'd probably find interesting. Yeah. She knew without words the joy and limitless transparency that the body dissolved into when it was free and alive. As an adolescent and young adult, she acutely felt and enacted suffering through her body, struggling with an eating disorder and with depression. Thus, the experience that we call the body has always been central to all of Ellen's experiences, both in the ignoring and in the recognition of her true nature. Today, Ellen lives in Oxford, England, with her husband, Rupert Spira, whom I've also interviewed twice on this show, a teacher in the tradition of non-duality. She has a private practice as a psychotherapist and facilitator of authentic movement. We'll be talking about authentic movement. Her background of dance movement therapy and transpersonal psychology has been deeply influenced by the non-dual understanding. Ellen also offers meetings called The Awakening Body, an exploration of the body and, per and a perception sourced in the teaching tradition of Kashmir Shaivism, Jean Klein, and Francis Lucille. During these sessions, our true nature is explored at the level of the body and of the sense perception. Ellen has master's degrees in dance movement therapy from NYU and transpersonal psychology from JFK University. She has a certificate in Laban movement analysis and her other teachers and mentors were Janet Adler and Marion Woodman, who provided great guidance and support in the realms of feminine wisdom, archetypical energies and intuitive knowing. That's a good overview. <laughs> As usual, Ellen, in preparation for this, I, I read as much as I had time to. I was, I was reading a long scholarly article on your website, which I was finding interesting. And I also listened to as many audio recordings as I could find. I was just listening to the one you did with Marlies Cocheret on Conscious TV. And right in the beginning of your introduction, you, you talk about she awakened to her true nature of peace and happiness. Just so that, I mean, probably everybody listening to this show has a sense of what that means, but just so that we're all on the same page, why don't you describe what you mean by true nature and the experience of awakening to it? What I mean by true nature is awareness, what we call consciousness. The awakening was a moment, but, you know, the result of maybe a long kind of journey but the moment, of, the, the moment of recognition, the moment of awakening was when I heard Francis Lucille say on a tape, he said the words consciousness knowing itself. And at that moment, there was a, a kind of a yes 
within me, a recognition, a resonance. And of course, it wasn't clear at that moment what that resonance was about. So then there were many visits and lots of time spent with Francis where all the vocabulary, um, which of course had been exposed to through readings and meetings, etc. But the, the kind of formulations of what true nature means became clear at the level of the mind. And it was what is meant by that and what I understand by that, by true nature, is the knowing of, of my being, not my being Ellen, woman, individual, but my being right this moment, very ordinary I that is hearing these words, that is feeling sensations, and that if I begin to investigate what that I is, I can come to the knowing, the direct knowing that it's not limited to a body and a mind. And of course, you know, I could go, I could speak for two hours about that. Oh, well, that's it, exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> but it's uh, true the knowing of, of my true nature is the recognition of the unlimited nature of, of I and the ever-present nature of I. Okay. And of course, that comes in the beginning as a glimpse or a moment of recognition. And then I guess the journey is the establishment in that. Yeah. Progressive. As you may recall, the last words I spoke to you and Rupert in yeah. Cal California was, was, Rupert, the direct path is progressive. <laughs> exactly, but it's, it's right. It's direct and it's progressive both at the same time. It's, a it's, it's not a paradox. It's just both at the same time. Progressive in the sense of the establishment process. And that's a beautiful unfolding, a real unfolding. Direct because right here, right now, we can abide as awareness. Yeah. I like the way you phrase this here continuous and deepening glimpses. And then you said the process of aligning and stabilizing your life to and in this beautiful non-dual understanding has never ceased to unfold since then. I was just watching this talk that uh, Adyashanti and Francis Bennett gave last week out in California, and they were talking about people who run around saying, I'm done. And Francis said, what do you mean you're done? Did somebody stick a fork in you? Um, <laughs> And you know, they were sort of playing with the absurdity of, of saying that one is done with a capital D when the actual experience of life seems to be a never-ending unfolding. Yes, I think you can always uh, perfect the alignment process. And I guess some people are more or less done, you know, <laughs> but then it's a celebratory process. I don't think it ever ends, to be honest. I don't either, and, and I don't know if I've ever met anyone who is done, although I've met some people who say they are, but I, I can't believe that there isn't still some alignment and refinement and attunement and whatnot that exactly. could still be you know, undergone. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, that's the beauty of it in a way, you know. After awakening, the beauty of it is this unending process of this understanding permeating all, all areas of life, and um, that's quite a vast project, you know. It all of is. a sudden, all these doors open and um, all these areas of exploration, the, the understanding can, can percolate throughout so many levels. There's not enough of a lifetime, really. In that thing that I was reading that you wrote, you said, you quoted Rumi as saying, the physical form is of great importance. Nothing can be done without the association of the form and the essence. The body is fundamental and necessary for the realization of the divine intention. And I think I wanted to read that just now because it relates very much to what we're saying. Um, if, if we think of the body as an instrument, then I suppose in an orchestra, to use that metaphor, you, you know, at a certain point your violin is tuned up and you can start playing. But in life, I kind of feel that the physical body through which we realize the divine intention, as Rumi put it, 
can be tuned up ad infinitum. You know, there's no end to the attunement. Absolutely. And, and I mean, first of all, the body, I think, needs to be liberated. Even after the awakening, more often than not, the body is still kind of felt and experienced in accordance with the old belief of being a separate consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because it's very anchored as a conditioning, obviously. So, uh, in, order, in order for that to begin to, to relax and the body to actually begin to be felt and experienced in accordance with this new understanding, it, it takes some real exploration, which actually is not always undertaken. I mean, I think that's the, the area of the teaching that particularly resonates or, or is particularly interesting to me in terms of what I like to share. But yes, I think with the body, it's, it's a long-term project. Lifetime, as you said. Lifetime, yeah, yeah, yeah. And beautiful, really a beautiful one. So let's keep playing with this idea of awakening to true nature and being done and realizing and all that. Because I think that, you know, a lot of people listen to these kinds of words and they, they have a sense that there's some kind of finality to awakening or s some sort of, you know, watershed moment that one crosses. And, and again, there are people running around saying they're done, but that's not going to jibe with most people's direct experience. Most people are going to feel that, you know, they've had awakenings and then there's another one. And then, you know, there's, there still seems to be this attunement and growth taking place. And so there can, it can kind of actually inculcate a doubt where one feels that, I'm not there yet, and there must be a there that I'm going to get to. And, um, you know, since I don't feel like I've reached it, then I'm it, it kind of keeps them in a limbo state where they, they're still perhaps yeah. doubting their own experience more than they need to. Well, I, I guess, I think if I was lucky, well, I was lucky. I don't know if I was more, more or less lucky than anybody else, but what I feel is, is, is important in my experience is that there's a, point where you meet the, t the absolute understanding is met and recognized and that moment is, is absolute. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a moment, but that recognition, that is the awakening to your true nature and it's a, a true anchor. And if, if the teacher or the teaching is clear and experiential and over and over again through a, a kind of process of higher reasoning with the mind or higher sensing with the body, you go over the pathway from a belief in separation to the understanding of your true nature. You do it over and over again, but with a, with a map that's steady and within which there's no doubt. It's absolutely certain. So that, that I feel is important. That it's not wishy-washy and awakening. It's, it's a possibility to have a real awakening. So then what's, what's more layered and more, um, more of a process is, is the um, alignment process. So it's no longer, we're no longer talking about awakening. The awakening happens, you are awake, you know what you are, but you seem to go back and forth, you seem to forget, you seem to re-shrink yourself into the feeling of being a limited awareness. But because you have, there's been this deep recognition and if you're lucky, a kind of map, then there's always the possibility of going over it again and again and again. And that's the establishment process. I mean, that, I don't know if that's true for everybody, it's my experience. So I think of people who feel that, that they're still in a, engaged in a process, there could be two things. Either it hasn't been a clear, there's still a confusion about, about what I am or what this awakening is, and it needs, it needs to be met with something clear. Or they're in, engaged in this alignment process, and they know that, you know, and they do that around the teaching that, that suits them. 
Am I making sense? Yes, you are. <laughs> and let, let's take those two things that you just laid out and try yeah. to explore them. So the first one was sounded kind of intellectually rigorous, and I imagine <laughs> you know Francis oh. Cecile being a rather intellectual fellow, it was intellectually rigorous in your experience. I mean, Francis is well, very. But I wouldn't say intellectual because intellectual. Not exclusively. Sound, well, intellectual in the sense that it uses the mind. Yeah but experiential, and it was, mm -hmm. for me, and I'm, I'm not somebody who gravitates towards thinking so much, I'm more of a, I was more into devotional and uh, flow and dance and movement, and it was interesting that the person, the teacher that somehow was chosen was this, as you say, very rigorous... Physicist. Uh, physicist and French and, uh, well, French, rationalist. But yes, yeah, so there's this aspect, it's rigorous, you're right, it's rigorous, because it takes the mind step by step back to its source, and it doesn't let the mind go off on a tangent, but it's truly experiential, you know. It's just as experiential as doing something through the energy body, or through, the, uh, through a kind of less rational process. Yeah. So yeah, but yes, it's, it's rigorous, and you know, I have to admit that I, I think that's super important. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit it. I admit it. Happily. <laughs> <laughs> so, so intellectually rigorous. So I didn't mean to imply that it was no. exclusively intellectual, like you're just sort of philosophizing and, you know, getting into metaphysics and so on. But there's an intellectual component, and it's, it's sort of a multidimensional thing, isn't it, where uh, the intellect is involved, but, but in a sense to corroborate uh, direct experience as if in walking we, we have a left foot and a right foot, and so there's the experience and then the understanding and the experience and then the understanding and the two complement and, and support one another. Yes, you could say that. Yeah, it's using the mind, you're right, it's intellectual in the sense that the mind is the tool that's used step mm -hmm. by step following the experience yeah. of investigating, of self-inquiry. But yeah, yeah. And if we can imagine one without the other, I mean, the experience could be anything without intellectual, without sort of the intellectual discrimination. One could mistake some mood exactly. for, for the real enchilada or, you or know. Or have the real enchilada but not have the formulation that helps. It, feel, it feels to me that the formulation is so important, the right formulation. What do you mean by formulation? Well, well for example, when I stuck a tape of Francis's in my car and I'd been given all Anyway, I stuck it in. It was in the middle of a teaching, and I heard consciousness knowing itself. So that's a formulation, right? It uses languages, and it brought me to understanding. In other words, it's through the mind that there was a kind of dissolving into true nature. Yeah. It could have been another pathway. So, so at that point, when you heard that phrase, did, you, did it really dissolve into true nature? Or was it more like an aha thing, which kind of like you realized, oh, there's something here, I need to investigate this more, I, maybe I'm more than I, th I thought I was and I need to explore this. Was it just like the, it, the it, first inkling of, of a sense that there's, that there's a, a universal aspect to you or was it actually no, a real I, shift? I, I think there was already, you know, I'd done my little journey already, so there was already an inkling and at that moment it was a real glimpse, you could say. It's, yeah, you could taste it, it. It was a kind of yes that was coming from presence, from mm -hmm. awareness. In the Upanishads, they have these things that they call Mahavakyas. You've, you've heard them, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that thou art and, and you know, Tatvamasi and all those things. And, and it's said that when you're ripe, just that little phrase spoken by the teacher yes. can elicit a huge shift. Yes. And I guess that was a Mahavakya, mm -hmm. but it was using the mind, wasn't it? Consciousness knowing itself, it was... 
Well, that's what time, the Mahawakis do. I mean, kind of turned back onto itself and yeah. dissolved. It, you know, I mean, I wasn't aware what was happening. But, I mean, I wasn't. I was very new to all of that. It's it's now looking back that you can kind of deconstruct all all these, all these, all these. What are they? I don't know. These processes. <laughs> Well, that's in, that's in keeping with what we're talking about, which is this sort of intellectual rigor along with direct experience. And it seems like that phrase, when you heard it, conscious, what was it, consciousness being aware of itself? Consciousness knowing itself. Knowing itself. It, it sort of actually triggered a kind of a self-referral moment that's there. That's right, yeah. yeah. So that was when you were very kind of initially introduced to Francis, right? You, somebody gave yeah. you a tape or something and you hadn't really gotten into it. Yeah, but the funny thing is I had been... I'd been much more drawn towards a kind of devotional uh, quality of, you know, I'd gone to India, I'd gone to see Amma, I'd, I had this dream that was very devotional, well, I, anyway, I, a much more devotional kind of shakti, you could say, a kind of tendency, and, and then I, I was introduced to the non-dual direct path, and it was so resonant, it was strange, you know, it was in a way beautiful. Do you find now that having been on that path for over a decade that you've discovered the devotional nature of a devotional stream within that as well? Yes, yes, very much so. I mean, I feel that when I teach the awakening body meditations, I always start in a kind of devotional way because I feel like you know, it's almost like turning back towards an altar and the altar is presence and of and of course, the presence that turns towards the altar is the very same presence. Yes, I feel like devotion is still very much a kind of expression yeah. that's here. And I feel like I've been thinking back on my time before meeting Francis when I was in India. And I, I had this very powerful dream when I was in India, which I had been thinking back upon because I'm not somebody who has powerful dreams. So this dream kind of stands out. And I realized the whole teaching was contained in that dream. But yet its form was much more devotional. But now I can go back to that dream and see that the non-dual teaching is contained in it and kind of let it inform how I express this understanding. Personally, I don't think that it has to be an either-or situation, and I don't think that it ever is, actually, entirely. I know, naturally, some people are more intellectually inclined and some are more emotionally inclined and so on, but, you know, the greatest proponents of non-duality were very devotional people. You know, Shankara was yeah. wrote all these devotional poems and talked about devotion, and Ramana Maharshi was very devoted. Yes. Uh, Francis, during his retreats, he, he does these guided meditations in the early days, and I think still now, but they were, they were extremely devotional, not, not in a dual way, you know, they, yeah. they would start out with really beautiful imagery, sometimes taken from the Christian tradition, of surrendering, for example, surrendering the body, surrendering the mind, surrendering the world to an altar. I remember this particular meditation of Francis's, and then, and then him explaining, you know, somehow that the altar to which you surrender is presence, of course, is consciousness, but that that's the true meaning of sacrifice, you know, in making sacred the body and the mind. Mm. All those meditations were very devotional. And I think it stands to reason because as human beings, we have these different faculties or components and one of them is the heart. And if you're going to be a fully developed human being, then, you know, you're not going to be one of these bug-eyed space aliens that doesn't have any heart and it's a big, great big head and oval eye. 
there, we have all these energy centers in the, yeah. bo in the body and they're all going to wake up eventually, perhaps in a different order for different people. But yes. eventually, if we're really going to keep progressing, as we've been discussing, it seems to me they're all going to get fully enlivened eventually. Yes, exactly. I mean, and love seems to, you know, if we're to try to, to name the, the kind of attributes, qualities of consciousness, uh, as Rupert says, when he, he says, you know, it's our awareness is intimately one with all experience. And that's another name for that is love. Love and intelligence, beauty, uh, all of these are, are different layer. Intelligence, <laughs> love, yeah, yeah. beauty, the world. So, yes. You read these beautiful accounts in the scriptures, uh, Vedic literature, and perhaps other traditions of, you know, someone encounters a saint, and the saint might be a great intellectual and teacher and, you know, proponent of Vedic wisdom or something, but someone comes to meet him and tears come to their eyes and yes. their, their hair stands on end and they, they just melt in, in, you know, waves of love and devotion. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Francis never did that, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I just want to throw that in there because some, sometimes in, in the so-called non-dual world, there seems to be a dryness, and I think that people I are kind of true. yeah, people are kind of moving beyond that now. That was also one of the themes of Adya's and Francis's, Francis Bennett's talk last week that there seems to be a whole shift taking place in the contemporary spiritual community where people are kind of waking up to these more personal values which they at one time may have denounced or felt they had transcended. Yes. Yeah, and also the, the, maybe in the kind of neo-Advaita teaching, it's been confusing for people. There's nothing to do, nobody there. And that can be a bit dry too, because pe people might have a glimpse, which isn't dry in the presence of that teaching. But then uh, a few days later, it feels kind of blank. Nobody there, nothing to do. And yet all these you know, old feelings are there and a kind of absence of perfume or absence of... Um, so that's another way in which the contemporary Advaita teaching can be a bit dry. Yeah. And in my opinion, not really in, in tune with, with its roots, with the traditional Advaita teaching, which included the heart and which wasn't dry. As, I, as I've been saying, the main proponents of it were not dry by any definition. They were very heart-filled and yes. you know, transcendent and imminent both in one embodiment. Yes. But I guess the other trap, which might be part of today's scene. well scene and is the kind of psychologizing of the spiritual teaching and mm -hmm. i'm not saying we shouldn't you know i'm a therapist and i think it's very you know i'm very interested in the emotional component and the personal aspects of the unfolding but i also feel that it's a, a tricky balance what are we serving who are we serving here in this exploration is it serving a kind of pseudo a person still you know if we're too in exploring the personal process too much. I'm not being very clear, but... I think I know what you mean. Well, let's, let's rephrase it. So, probably what we're aiming at is the complete package, where we have the transpersonal, the transcendent, the, the impersonal, the unmanifest, the absolute, whatever you want to call it. But then we have the whole range of relative personal faculties and experiences and strata of creation and all that. And we're aiming at a package which includes them both. And one can go to one extreme or the other. To the transcendent, to the exclusion of the personal, and run around saying, referring to oneself as 
the Rick person rather than just saying I'm I'm Rick. <laughs> Are people doing that? I yeah, mean, people do that. They they don't they won't just say hey, how do you do? I'm Rick. Uh, you know, they'll say, I'm the Rick person, and there's nobody here, <laughs> so on and so forth. You know, please pass the salt. Who wants the salt? I mean, you know. <laughs> but that's really, you know, absurd and silly. It and is, but people do it. Yeah. And yeah. then the other extreme, what you're just saying, is one can indulge in all sorts of personal, psychological, emotional, this and that, without actually bringing the transcendent into the picture and there's no end to you know one can spend lifetimes ex doing that mucking around without without actually building a foundation under it yes i mean technically and hopefully uh, a sound non-dual teaching will it's true put the emphasis in the beginning on establishing the fact of awareness and exploring the qualities of awareness because it ha it has to be we have to start there it's we have to uproot the illusion of, of separation. So it seems that the emphasis is placed on, and I, but it's also a deep desire to do that in the students when he, he or she hears the teaching. But then in the best of cases, the teacher, I mean, and nobody's perfect, nobody will do it perfectly, but it will point towards a direction that allows this teaching to be explored at all levels. And that will kick up all sorts of things. In other words, it's, it should start from the absolute mm. and not start from a person trying to sh change right. consciousness. You know, it, yeah. So it's true there isn't a person there. But on the other hand, if there, it, it uh, feels that there's a person there, let's Like, let's like we said earlier, paradox. Yeah. And, and, and also, Jesus said what you just said 2,000 years ago, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, seek ye first. So the, the priority is... Yes. get that established and then all and else should be added and also the rest if that really is taking place in the best possible way the rest takes care of itself more or less but i think maybe in the contemporary what's good about the contemporary exploration is people really want to make sure that that's taking place and want to cooperate with that and and explore what tools we can use to to allow that more you know maybe in the realm of psychology, in the realm of the feminine and... No, I think it's no, important. The spiritual bypass, all those, those concerns, they're legitimate, but they have to be in good measure, I guess. Yeah. Well, like you just said, uh, once that's established, all the relative stuff gets taken care of by itself, more or less. I think you said something like that just now. But then in the next breath, you said, yeah, but there's all these other things you can do to help facilitate that. And I've seen many instances in my own life as well, and at many during some of its phases, in which all kinds of relative stuff wasn't getting taken care of. There's plenty of immersion in the absolute, but that didn't necessarily automatically bring all phases of the relative into line. And in your own me. In my own experience, and, yeah. and, and other people too, you can see people who have been, you know, meditating for decades and all or whatever that are still like pulling shady business deals or, you know, screwing yes. up relationships and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. You can see, you know, famous teachers who sure, are, sure, sure. you know, radiating Shakti, you know, out the wazoo, but are messing around with their students in inappropriate ways and, you know, all kinds of things like that. So, yeah. Well, I guess that's their freedom, but also I would question the the depth of their understanding or how in love are they with their true nature. I mean, and that's, you know, their freedom. And how holistic is their development? Ken Wilber's lines of development, they could be way out on one line and pretty stunted in other lines. Yeah, yeah. So let's get back to you a little bit more. 
So movement and dance. You were in love as a child with movement and dance, and uh, you still are into it. And you went through a phase, uh, you were born in New York, you spent 18 years in France, then you moved back to the States, I think, to California, was it? And, New York. Uh, New York. And um, you went through a lot of suffering as a child, eating disorder, depression, what, what was it, bulimia or anorexia or something like that? Bulimia yeah. was my chosen one. <laughs> Your eating disorder of choice. And so how did you pull out of that phase without killing yourself? <laughs> Well, I went the route of therapy, mm -hmm. psychotherapy. Not that psychotherapy necessarily did the job of pulling me out. You know, I just, just a, a journey, um, some therapy, a lot of uh, trying to heal through certain approaches that were more honoring of the feminine, that kind of thing. So, and some of these things were very helpful, but I, I have to say that, you know, the real, the real un uprooting of that suffering was meeting Francis, even though I never mentioned, you know, I would, it was never addressed head on by the teaching, but it's because the root of any kind of addiction or any is, is the belief that I am a body and that I will die. And so, you know, you can do all sorts of therapies and some of them were very helpful. I'm, and I'm a therapist and I meet people in the ways that I was met by some therapies, but it was the, the ultimate understanding that was so relaxing for me. It was so relaxing to hear, to hear and to, feel, and to begin to feel in the yogas that Francis would lead, even though Again, it was not a psychological investigation, but mm -hmm. simply to, first of all, feel my body and to realize that I'm not in the body, the body is in me and mm -hmm. that its substance, its very substance is consciousness, vibration. It's innocent, the body, you know. It took time, I mean, you know, it wasn't like healing overnight or anything, but it was much less charged to have this addiction was no, so what? It was gonna unwind in its own time. So I've only encountered Francis in sort of a, a speaking mode, you know, interviewing him, seeing him speak at the Sand Conference and everything. But I've heard you allude to the fact that he actually does some kind of yoga sessions. And then I also heard somebody, maybe it was you, maybe it was my previous guest, John Prendergast, talk about how Jean Klein had some kind of yoga thing oh, yes, that yes. people would be doing. I should probably ask Francis again this again sometime, but maybe in, in the context of what you went through, Tell us about what your time with Francis entailed in terms of practices and this yoga thing, how that worked and, you know, what sort of effects it had and, and so on. Jean Klein was very much uh, offering an expression of the body and so is Francis, so is Rupert in his retreats. And it's very much a, a part of the, of that, of that, of their teaching. And also mm -hmm. it's the yoga that I offer. And, and it was a very resonant for me when I went to Francis. His retreats are usually made of, composed of a morning. Well, now he does everything in the afternoon because he likes to play tennis. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but basically the first part of his retreat, the first session is a, is a meditation and what he calls a, a, a yoga uh, session. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a yoga that doesn't involve any kind of fancy postures. It's very, very slow. You're sitting it's on a slow. mat doing something? You might be sitting on a mat, but you can be sitting on a chair um, mm -hmm. and the, your eyes are closed. And, and the first thing that is um, established, of course, is awareness. But at the level of feeling, awareness is experienced uh, almost like a, an open, infinite space-like, a space-like openness, a bit like the sky. And then you begin to explore the body. How is um, it that awareness is experienced that way? What does Francis do well, to enable people to have that experience? Um, 
Well, or what would you do, or Rupert, if you were yeah, doing the same I, thing? We would, I would, um, we would close our eyes and, and um, first of all, welcome the current experience such as it is, the flow of thoughts and sensations and perceptions, and point out that they're not appearing in nothing, that they're appearing in awareness, mm -hmm. or to awareness, and in awareness, and then, and then maybe pr provide an image of uh, the sky-like nature of this awareness, mm when you begin to focus on, on sensations or the space-like quality of this awareness. Um, and I mean, if you go to your experience right now, Rick, and you go, you know, to some, a sensation, for example, the sensation of your hand, the tingling of your hand, and then you tune into the kind of knowing, the feeling knowing that this tingling of the hand appears in an openness, in a kind of space. It's like a correlating awareness to space. So you're pointing out something to people that is already there that they may they may yes. have they may have overlooked yes and you're and enabling them to kind of settle down because usually the agitation and the outward directedness yes. of our attention is conducive to overlooking you know yes. what's already there yeah to settle down and to and to take your stand as the welcoming of experience which is our true nature but you know obvi obviously we are often resisting experience and and there's a lot of tension, as you say, and agitation. So it takes time, but that's the first thing that happens. And then, then the body is perceived as a flow of sensations and vibrations in this openness. So it's as if you were liberating the body of all the labels. Because usually we, our body is experienced as a kind of layering of tension and contraction. That's uh, kind of the anchoring of the ego at the level of the body. You know, it's yeah. like me, the body. So when you start to taste the body, free a little bit more more relaxed a little bit more op from from a more open perspective a more safe perspective then the body reveals itself to be more of an innocent flow of sensations yeah. so that would be you know already to do that that exploration would be a very big exploration to to explore the fact that the body is not i am not in the body the body is in me mm -hmm. and me is this openness that you know so that would be a first amazing discovery you know? yeah. for me it was like whoa because then of course i remember i had this kind of chronic fear that was a very intense sensation in my solar plexus and i remember having to kind of welcome that sensation that i had been repressing and controlling and and then asking francis is it really safe and, and exploring etc etc and then over the years this the body naturally re was relieved of that that kind of charge, it was like a me charge, me, I'm going to die and I'm in danger charge. <laughs> but then there's so many other components to this yoga, you know, you will explore, for example, we're very conditioned to feel that I, the body ends, or oh, I end where the body ends. And there's a feeling that goes with that. So there will be an exploration of expanding the body into the space and the space is alive, it's not dead, it's friendly and and then you really go there, you really, you really go and you really realize, oh yeah, it's true, I can't find the place where my body ends and the space begins. There might be also an expression of weight, of surrendering weight. Weight? Realizing, weight? Like heaviness no, weight? Yes, the sensation of weight, mm -hmm. the sensation of me heavy, me solid, me dense, mm. which is all, another habitual way that the ego perpetuates itself, you could say physically. So in this approach, There'll be a lot of releasing of the weight into, for example, the surface of the chair or the, the mat, and then tuning in and sensing that this so-called chair or mat 
if you go to your direct experience, there is no chair or mat. There's just this kind of sensation. And then awakening to the, to the aliveness of that sensation, to the vibrational flow of that sensation. And, and then realizing that your true body is weightless. But it's all a process, you know, and, you know, you can't really talk about it and describe it. It's so experiential. You're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> then there's, you know, exploring movements and the habit of feeling that I am the mover. And then, you know, just exploring a very simple movement and feeling, evoking the feeling that movement appears in me, that there is no individual mover. And, you know, that's a beautiful discovery, etc., etc. Yeah. And there's some explorations with the sense perceptions, with hearing and touching and smelling and... Would you say that the body actually really enjoys functioning in the way that you are describing and that these, this yoga evokes? And therefore, if you, if you give it half a chance, you know, if you give it an opportunity, it's going to begin to shift into that mode. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and then if you give it repeated opportunities, that mode will become more and more habituated. Absolutely, yes. It's the natural state at the level of the body. Yeah. Transparency, weightless, relaxed. Yoga will also reveal all sorts of layers of emotions, fears, tensions, which is the beauty of that yoga too, is that it creates a kind of openness for many layers to come up to the surface of so-called suffering, habits of what constitutes suffering. And in this yoga, what's beautiful is, you know, you don't do anything with the I feeling that arises. You just... It's as if you offered it to presence, for presence to take care of. It's not your, you don't have to do anything with the stuff that comes up. It's a very, you know, hands-off approach. Very beautiful. The ocean keeps dissolving spoonful after spoonful of mud and seems to have the capacity yeah. to do so. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And this too, I think, is worth dwelling upon, isn't it? Because it's, it's not a matter of just sort of sinking into a more natural state of mental and physiological functioning but in that more natural state all of the unnaturalness that has been accumulated over the course of a lifetime wouldn't you say the body has a natural tendency to want to throw that off and you're finally giving it an opportunity to do so and exactly. so it naturally begins to happen without your having to poke around and figure out okay what do i need to throw off let me try to find something it, it just surfaces whatever's ready to go yeah. It does, if it, 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 it absolutely does, as long as, as you kind of really truly welcome the body yeah. without an agenda, which means that you've taken your stand or you've taken your right place. You are open, at least, to the possibility that the true I is this openness, yeah. this infinite ever-present awareness, because then the body is welcomed. It doesn't mean the body relaxes immediately. On the contrary, all of a sudden, the body's free to surface. I often have the image of establishing awareness and then letting the sensations of the body be free to be as they are and and I use a, an image of opening cages in the body because we often have put sensations in knots of density and energetic constellations are, are nice and compact and kept so just liberating all these different areas of the body for no reason without any agenda uh, just just to let the body find its own reorchestrate itself on its own. It doesn't need to be told what to do, this poor body. It's been told what to do. 
Well, it seems there's an overarching reason, which is that, you know, we've been carrying around all this baggage for so many years, it would be nice to get rid of it. <laughs> that's a good reason for going to a retreat and sitting down doing this process. Yeah, well, that's true that the motivation for any initial motivation is that we don't want to suffer anymore, and that's a fine motivation. And would you say that during the process there's an oscillation between, um, you know, deepening and then stuff getting stirred up, and then deepening and then stuff getting stirred up? It just sort of goes in a cycle. Yeah. Maybe that's not a universal, well, but like, isn't is that a kind of a general pattern? Yeah, and then when you went deepening, I would I want would want to say kind of expanding and expanding. Yeah. But sometimes deepening too, like in mm -hmm. terms of allowing this kind of vibrational aliveness of life, you know, yeah. of body. Yes, and then there can be a shrinking back or a mm -hmm. contraction. Or contraction can arise that that seems to shrink awareness back into itself and then a surrendering again. So it's very, it's a very alive and not a rational, the exploration with the body, it's not rational mm -hmm. at all, which is what was so beautiful with the retreats at Francis. There was these two experiences, one very irrational and the other one very rational. And so it took care of both the mind and the body. And then there was also a dimension of the world because we explored perception. In what way? Uh, uh, well, in the yoga, you, you might explore hearing and seeing and tasting and touching and explore that or establish experientially that hearing, tasting, touching, etc. don't appear in a body. A sound doesn't appear in the ear, a taste in the mouth, but that they appear in awareness, in a way liberating the sense perceptions of, of this localization in the body. So that, you know, you've had probably the experience of hearing where hearing resonates in openness. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easier maybe with hearing. It is easier with hearing. And actually, I, I heard Rupert going through something similar to this, or maybe yes. this very thing on that recent audio series that he put out. But when you think of it, you know, we're, we're more familiar with a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing than we are with a subtler aspect of, this, of any other sense, and that is thinking. Thoughts are sounds, and they're, they're a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. Yes. So uh, that's, I, yeah. I, I was reminded of that when you said it might be easier with hearing. But with thinking, you can do the same. You know, you can explore the fact that there is a kind of feeling, feeling habit that the thinker is located in the head, right. and there's a kind of massive energy sensation there. But you can go to your experience and, and see very clearly that, you know, thoughts don't appear in a head. Nobody's seen a thought in a head. And, that they appear in awareness, just like the sound, just like the sensation of touch. And all these explorations, you know, they're, they're so beautiful, first of all. They're, they're like refinements, and they're, they're like playing music. They're like tuning the instrument. And, and, but they also happen, you know, it's ongoing. I think it's quite important to conduct them over, over extended periods. Um, yeah. So that, that was world, but the world part of, of of experience was also taken in Francis's retreat and, and also at Rupert's and I'm sure other teachers is to do with friendship and, and the kind of lovely atmosphere amongst the, the Sangha and, you know, eating together and sharing time together and have, having the time. There's so many examples and sayings in so many traditions about the value of having a Sangha of some kind. I mean, what is it Christ said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. You know, there's so many examples in Eastern scriptures and, and others about the value of 
the company of the, the, the so-called enlightened, you know, just being in the company of, of like-minded people who are all seeking the same thing and how conducive that is to, to yes. realizing it. Yeah, yeah I, it, it was very much my experience. Friendships, the friendships in the Sangha were so sweet and, yeah. And you met Rupert there. I met Rupert, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah. that paid yeah. off. Um, <laughs> That was the only motivation, getting yeah. a husband. <laughs> yeah, that was it. You were just sort of a, <laughs> on a quest. <laughs> Here's this handsome Englishman with a cool accent. <laughs> yeah. I had my eyes on him when I first got there. Yeah. I had to wait a bit, but... <laughs> yeah, he's a charming fellow. Have your and Rupert's uh, respective evolutionary processes always been conducive to a kind of a deeper, more intimate relationship, or have they sometimes resulted in one or the other of you becoming somewhat ethereal or disembodied or something like that. That might seem like a strange question and I can clarify it if you like, but knowing you and Rupert just to the extent I do, I, I always find Rupert to totally charming but kind of cerebral, you know, a little ethereal when you talk to him. And then here you are, this, you know, movement, dance, you know, embodiment person. I mean, how, how has the... Um, interaction of those two tendencies uh, played out for you? Well, it's played out, let's put it that way. <laughs> it still plays out. Still playing um, out. I mean, it, it's kind of cruel because we, we really see eye to eye with, with this understanding. And, you know, we share a, teacher, a teaching and, uh, you know, we share the teacher. We, 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 the teacher, yeah. Um, so that, that's a kind of real foundation not that we refer back to it consciously, but it's so such a s underlying. It's yeah. kind of there, um, and we are very different characters. Of course, Rupert was a ceramic artist, and that's kind of earthy, you know. That's very yeah, he's, tactile. He's, and I know what you mean when you say he's cerebral. He loves to think, and he's he articulates through thought, and he's not. You know, you don't get Rupert to dance very often. Yeah, I couldn't. You wouldn't get me to dance very often either, so <laughs> I, I, I'm not putting him down. You know, it's just. <laughs> Kind of a personality so, type thing. Like any relationship, where it's quite, we're very polarized, so at times it's been explosive, but then, you know, let it be because we knew that it's, it's going to resolve not so much in the whatever conflict, but it resolves a bit later on in understanding. Mm -hmm. But that kind of friction is so rich, in, and we learn. I mean, I've learned a lot from Rupert, and I continue to, and I know he does. He doesn't learn <laughs> from me so much. He doesn't? Well, I think he learns a lot, but not. I don't think he, he adds on to his array of thinking tools, but I definitely think he learns from me on another level, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's good. It works. <laughs> Do you think that a polarized kind of relationship, which has a, an underlying common denominator, such as yours, is perhaps... Well, first of all, a polarized relationship without that common denominator would probably be hell and probably wouldn't work out. But, but one with a common denominator, do you think that would be more evolutionary, and we're speaking somewhat hypothetically, than one which wasn't very polarized at more all? More revolutionary, did you say? More, more evolutionary. Do you think there's more opportunity for growth and change and maturation and so on in a sugar and salt kind of relationship that, you yeah. know, than there would be in a salt-salt sort of relationship? Or a salt and pepper, I should say. I don't really know. I know there's a great deal of learning potential in, in my situation with Rupert and, you know, with our relationship, but I don't have a... 
I'm just curious. I mean, the thought just occurred to me. It wasn't a pre-planned question, but no, no. you know, people talk about finding a compatible mate and so on. And does yeah. do you really want a compatible mate that's that's kind of like a, a well, you know a perfect fit on yeah. on all levels, or is there going to be some greater potential in in a situation in which the, the two of you have some significant differences, but there's an underlying connect, you know, common yeah. denominator. I mean, I think it's very important to have shared interests, not just the, un the one underlying common den denominator, but also like Rupert and I share, you know, a love of nature and love of beauty. Mm -hmm. We like classical music. I mean, the little things like that, that we yeah. enjoy doing so that um, the polarities of our characters, it's as if God, you know, it, it felt like a match, almost like an arranged marriage a little bit. Rupert I know what I, you mean. Because, yeah. yeah I, I didn't, you know, I was, I had just moved to Temecula to, to kind of live nearby Francis mm -hmm. and I was happily single and, and then it just kind of appeared on the radar and there, there we were. I moved to England and I felt like, okay, this must be the next kind of face of, of the teaching. And I mean, I, I knew it was, to yeah. be honest. I think it's one of the most important ways that I, I have been given to explore this understanding and to refine it and, and it's been it is challenging at times i'm not answering your question directly because it could have been that the, you kind of are <laughs> that, that 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 rupert could have been more more like me and it would have been equally yeah but i guess my question is if he had been you know and this is again hypothetical i think you're obviously well, as you just said you're meant to be together but if he had been yeah. would that have actually been as evolutionary and i'm asking this well, not well, just about you and rupert but for people out there who yeah. you know might feel like geez you know my husband is this and i'm that and and where's the value in this but perhaps there could I be i think if there's a genuine interest in exploring and intimacy with this reference point of of the understanding somehow but so that the other becomes somehow a yoga at times, you know, the differences, the thing that, that is difficult in the other's character challenges you, and that's a, a kind of yoga of sorts. Mm -hmm. Or at other times, it's a kind of celebration. Carlos Castaneda so, talked oh, about the value of the petty tyrant. Not that either, either of you are tyrants, but he said even very challenging people and situations can be a gift because they, yeah. they have such it, an... They bring out, like, at times, the, the absolute, it push the button, like, right, <laughs> uh, or the edges, and then you really have to see it. I remember early on with Rupert in our relationship, we were having uh, some kind of conflict, and he told me, and he kind of said to me, like, straight on, he said, Ellen, don't go for the relationship, go for the truth. And it, it was such a kind of wake up. I, already, I knew exactly what he meant, but it was so good that he said it. And it's very important, that, that statement, that whenever we hit a kind of difficult spot, the tendency, of course, in conflict in a relationship is to blame and to niddle and want to resolve it. And, and, and I get caught in that. But ultimately, there will be a moment, hopefully, more and more, where I, I take it back to the absolute, or not the absolute up there, but the, to the truth, to honestly, you know, to love, you know, to a more impersonal understanding. And in the process of that, there's a lot that is getting to grow up, to mature, to open, to... It's Cult good. Culturing patience, tolerance, oh, for yes. forgiveness, yeah. compassion, yeah. all yeah. those things. Yeah. Well, taking it to a kind of a cosmic perspective, which you, we've alluded to a few times, I mean, if 
the world is not mechanistic and just a sort of a you know if it really has is imbued with intelligence which is orchestrating things for the purpose of our higher good for the purpose of our evolution then every little thing is a lesson right and every every person yeah. we engage with is our teacher yes that's true i agree with that i read a lot in your piece on the internet about this woman Janet Adler, is she still alive? Yes, oh, yes. Must, is she getting old or what's, what's her story? She's probably in her late 70s now. I, I haven't seen her in quite a few years. She lives um, on one of those islands off Vancouver. I'll be darned. I'm going out there in September. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, um, maybe I can interview her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's written a couple of books. And one of, she, she had a kind of kundalini awakening when she was in her 40s um, mm -hmm. and it came through you know in, for, in the form of very intense visions but also intense energy in the body and she didn't have a context within which to kind of approach this she wasn't in a particular spiritual teaching etc so she kind of, and she was a dance therapist and the way she kind of worked with this energy or met it was through this practice of authentic movement mm -hmm. which she hadn't created but she kind of tailored it to this kind of spiritual experience that was kind of bursting through her. And I read her book when I was prior to meeting Francis, and I was so drawn to that exploration, but I didn't quite know why. There was, but there was something about her book and the allowing of the body and the, the, the fascination for energy and uh, the kind of natural unfolding, kind of mystical unfolding of the body through spontaneous mudras or gestures or postures that was something that I kind of knew in my own experience and very it was very interesting to me and I so I um, sought her out and studied so to speak I mean I, I, I was with her for quite a few years and then in the in the middle of that the, the working with her I met Francis and it really had a radical effect on how I understood authentic movement she always talked about unitive states of consciousness and she didn't she was never exposed to the non-dual teaching so she wouldn't ever formulate it the way that I then began to formulate it after I met Francis. So we, we never disagreed, but we just kind of parted ways after that, soon after that. But I kept the form of authentic movement as something that I still work with, with clients. Is that a pretty major part of what you do with clients still? Yes, if they want to. Some people come to me especially for that, and then that's what we do. There's a, we talk, of course, but during the course of a session, there'll be a period of time where they will close their eyes and just allow an unfolding, in some cases over many years, so that there's a... I don't know how to describe this. It's, it's hard to talk about, but it's a very beautiful... In the beginning, you know, people might come because they're having very unexplainable, energetic experiences sometimes with vision sometimes with the kind of memories from past lives and 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 in this practice it's it's just a, a time where where that can be and I'm just witnessing and then there's a time to just speak so it's very simple in the sense that there's no hands-on there's no doing anything with anybody there's no manipulating the body and but because of the, the non-dual background the understanding that it's all unfolding in awareness and that ultimately it's completely safe and everything, the reality of everything is awareness so that people might come in, with these energetic phenomena. And I've often now seen that it's people who have had maybe trauma in their early childhood, very invasive, maybe trauma, 
maybe sexual, and triggered an out-of-body experience because it was too intense. And the out-of-body experience was a spiritual glimpse. Mm. So that later in life, there is a kind of confusion, but it's not, a, it's not rational. It's right at the level of the body, a confusion between fear, terror, the trauma, and the spiritual longing. I mean, that's how I articulate it. I don't really know, you know, and uh, I don't really need to know. So authentic movement is often a place where that can begin to disentangle. The fear part uh, begins to relax in the knowledge that it's welcome, that there's infinite space, and that the body can relax. And then the visionary aspect or the glimpses begins to fully take a shape, sometimes just in a recognition of peace and through the body, maybe in, in very precise shapes the body wants to take or a very clear movements. It, it's, it's very beautiful because it's spontaneous. It's a kind of spontaneous harmonizing of the body with its true nature. And in each mover, it will look differently. But it's, it's also quite, it's not always beautiful. I mean, it also, also allows lots of different Crying layers. and different stuff, yeah. Well, it sounds like what you're saying, from what you're saying, that firstly, um, it's kind of common for people these days to be having these energetic eruptions. And uh, either that or they're just seeking you out. But may, I wonder if there's more people having that these days than there was 30, 40 years ago. Um, that's one question. And, and you're also saying that you know, there seems to be a correlation between people having that and having been traumatized, you know, sexually assaulted or whatever in, in, their, inf in their childhood. Um, given that... Or pain body. You know that, or, or that notion? Pain body? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. carry on. I, well, yeah. I mean, and where does the pain body come from? Doesn't it come from traumatic experiences, perhaps? Yeah. So I guess the question... So there's stuff you could talk about on those two points, but then the third point is, this might seem strange, but our traumatic experiences, sometimes horrific ones, some kind of a hidden blessing in that they they become catalysts for spiritual awakening later in life, which is kind of what you just said. Yes, they are. They hmm. are, in a way. Any suffering, if it's, it's a call to come back home. Hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not to say that it's not extremely painful, sometimes excruciating, and, but if, if, in, if in fact it does allow for a, an awakening, then it is a blessing. It is absolutely huh. a blessing. Yeah, I know in, in my own case, um, my childhood was pretty rough. Alcoholic father, mother tried to commit suicide three times, um, you know, all kinds of heavy-duty stuff. And uh, it was pretty much at my wit's end by the age, age of about 17, 18 years old. And when I finally kind of latched on to spirituality, I just took off like a bat out of hell because it was such a, yeah. re such a relief, you know? Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, I think it, it is a relief when... when when I work with those those clients, and it's the suggestion, I really see often it's a suggestion that it's safe, but not just safe intellectually, but actually physically and energetically when they are in the throes of this energy I'm, and their eyes are closed, I might just, you know, throw out some words that really evoke that the kind of openness or the holding of the earth or, you know, some images that this little body doesn't have to take care of it all, you know, and it's, it's, it's a kind of reintroducing love to that equation that 
problematic, you know, reintroducing love and then things begin to unwind mm. and the trauma can resolve in its own time. The story of the trauma is very important to be allowed and it needs to be said and explored. But then there comes a time where that's done and that can be la laid to rest. Mm -hmm. But there can still be a, an exp uh, that those those people who are drawn, who have whose portals into the spiritual life has been the body and the energy, they'll still have, maybe have an affinity for that. And that's a very beautiful thing that I found is that people keep coming and there's no longer the trauma or the there's just this longing to close their eyes and be moved. And it's almost like they become the tea. I feel blessed, you know, in those moments, uh, witnessing these, these movers. I feel like it's Darshan. And I think how strange that I think our culture has forgotten these rituals, but these must have been rituals. This is a ritual. It feels like a, a kind of natural ritual that, you know, and not everybody would do it, would be drawn to it, but some people. Yeah. Well, um, not everybody's drawn to anything, you know, but it sounds like a, a, a useful tool. It can be, yes. To do it with you, do you have to come to Oxford or do you have <laughs> Skype sessions or something with people? I tried that once, but it's just not... Wouldn't work know. with movement, no. No, it's... You need to be together in the space. I only tried it once with one client and we gave it up quite soon. Yeah. Do you do yeah. sessions with clients over Skype that don't involve yes. the movement thing? Yes, I do. Yeah, 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 I do. And there you can still explore the you know, the sensations and feelings in the body, but not so much with movement. Yeah. 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 One thing I was wondering about when I was reading about the movement thing is that Janet Adler had a profound energetic awakening. And for her, the movements, I guess, were, they were kind of expressions of that raging energy that she was experiencing. But if you don't have that sort of energetic awakening, and you try to engage in something like this, aren't you just mimicking the uh, external appearances of, some, of what Janet was doing and just kind of going through the motions and, or perhaps just it, stirring yeah. up sort of a, a mood or, or an imaginary thing rather than the, what Janet was actually yes. referring to? You're right. Yeah. You're right. Sometimes, and I've got, I used to facilitate groups and that would take place. There was this kind of, exactly as you say, this kind of stirring up, stuff that doesn't need stirring up <laughs> yeah yeah and i didn't like that i didn't no. like facilitating groups like that and i so i don't i don't actually advertise that i the authentic movement a bit too much that the people who come it usually is people who kind of need to explore in that way yeah. um but otherwise it's not necessary yeah so you wouldn't you really might, get into it, a, the authentic movement thing with somebody unless they had had an energetic awakening and then it might be an appropriate tool yeah, or they might say, I'm really drawn to it. Yeah. They might not have an energetic, but there's something in them that, that resonates. And usually they close their eyes and you, you kind of get why they wanted to. You can mm -hmm. see that there's a, it's like something that finally can come up to the surface. It's of another order, maybe, or it's, it's just not uh, it's so hard to put into words. But um. I, I understand. <laughs> I have a few notes I, I took about it here. Authentic movement, devotional expression of non-duality, being moved, That's, connects you with reality, true nature. It does. And what I remember in my own experience of when I moved was I would always start with suffering in a way. You know, I would always start with the sense of me uh, separate. And, and instead of trying to fighting it or trying to make my way back to, 
to my understanding, I would just really, in a way, be penetrated, penetrate this resistance, because it was a resistance, a density, an energy, and then maybe then there would be a, a, a kind of emotional, personal emotional components of anger or whatever, and that would be completely allowed too. And, you know, it's sometimes so pleasurable and so important to let this me out of the box, you know, completely. Who cares at that moment if it's not me? Or, and then if it's allowed completely, then the personal component of the emotion begins to relax and then the emotion is pure and it's just pure maybe grief or pure rage which then paves the way for its you know it's God's grief or it's God's anger or it's God's emotion and then it then really begins to find its own move I mean it really then the form is unfolds and I remember arriving at the end of these sessions and at the time, there were still states, though, you know, because, and I would seek them out. I would want them again and again, <laughs> of that states of purity and, and a sense of, of silence and emptiness and expansion. That you would get into in these in these authentic movement things with Janet. You're yes, saying. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Hmm. But they were only recognized as unitive states, and then later, I you know, I was able to somehow understand the whole process from awareness it's awareness from beginning to end but um, yeah it's not that I arrive at awareness I started at awareness so. well weren't those tastes of unitive states uh, kind of wasn't it a similar mechanics to that which you began to go through with Francis but just in, through a different means I mean in his case it's you know you mentioned glimpses and repeated yeah. glimpses and deepening glimpses and so on I mean isn't, isn't it just another tool wasn't it just another tool for having glimpses of that, yes, except that same with, true nature with, except with Janet it was never formulated as the ground the the, 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 the fact of awareness was was our ever-present immediate direct experience now mm. and now you know so there was a, a kind of evolution from personal consciousness to she called it collective consciousness to unitive consciousness. Whereas I now would disagree. If I had to, you know, formulate, I wouldn't formulate it like that. Hmm. I felt that was misleading. Um, although I feel that she, it was, it was misleading in from the point of view of the formulation. But the experience was beautiful. And it sounds like she didn't have a teacher the way Francis did, so she didn't have that kind of exactly. structure yeah. for understanding and explaining it. Yes, it, it, her background was more Jungian psychology, mm. and then this kind of spiritual, mystical, more shamanic, maybe you could say. Uh, and then she she did it all by herself, you know. She didn't. She had a teacher, I think, but I don't remember who he was. Huh. Not not non-dual teacher, but some kind of mentor. Yeah. This is an interesting point you brought out. A couple of interesting points. One was from Janet about the relationship between surrender and will regarding my experience with the energy. I, I lifted that phrase from that article you wrote. That's something I've personally found interesting over the years, the, the kind of the balancing act between surrender and will, that, especially when, I mean, one could imagine that surrender had taken place to a very profound degree in which will was really taking had taken a back seat and the kind of divine will is uh, divine will is running the show but before you get to that point there can be years of transitionary period where you know there's a kind of a tug of war or a balancing act between those two things and one has to learn discernment 
in terms of what is my individual will and what is cosmic will, if you want to use that phrase, you know. Um, should I well, should I follow this impulse, or is that just a whim? Yeah. Is that an individual whim, yeah. or is that, am I being told something here? Yeah. Well, you see, I, I know what you mean, but I also want to say that it's all cosmic universal will. Yeah. All of the, that, that, so I, no. But I if you go to that, then the murderer is just carrying out universal will, and Hitler was carrying out universal will. But you know, I'm talking about um, in your own. Experience. In one's own experience, especially in, in the context see, of... You're hmm? right. Um, in, in your own experience, when I say it's all you cosmic will, I'm not saying it to be facile, but I think it's a, when you're involved in, a, in, an ex, in an exploration where you're, for example, experiencing personal will and then the, the unfolding, the kind of spontaneous, effortless unfolding, and they kind of... That which is experiencing those two is awareness. I mean, it's tr it's, yeah. it's it is being being perceived and unfolding in awareness. So, and it's really important that it's not just a bypass to say that, because once you really see that, you realize that the moments of so-called personal will are really moments of tension or subtle resistance, a kind of contraction back into a sense of separation. There's no problem, you know. But it's seen clearly. It's seen clearly that oh. Here's the me feeling, me the body feeling, or oh, here's fear, you know, here is, uh, in other words, you've got the key. It doesn't really matter, do you know what I mean? Maybe yeah. one way of clarifying my question is I've, just to take an example, I've been having some conversations recently with several friends who are spiritual teachers, and we've been talking about spiritual teachers who get a little drunk with the Shakti or with the with the attention that they receive and so on and begin to regard themselves as just following divine impulses and are and kind of lose the ability to be open to feedback from students and and begin to feel that whatever thought pops in their head basically is yeah is like divinely orchestrated and should should be believed and followed and trusted both by themselves and by their their followers and that you know one can go very far off the deep end with that line of thinking and get into yeah. serious trouble and do, so that's just a case in point but obviously most people listening to this aren't spiritual teachers yet we still have we, yeah. we're definitely moved by, I'd say, a, a higher purpose and by kind of cosmic intelligence. And yet at the same time, we have our individual will and our individual intelligence, which can either be at odds with or in tune with, to that, varying degrees, nice. that yeah. cosmic intelligence. Yeah, well, that's a nice way to put it. And when it's at odds, because the compass is the truth of our true nature, mm -hmm. ideally, when our current uh, person the small person is at odds with that compass when there's a feeling like I'm going to get that. Mm -hmm. if, if we're truth lovers and we're honest at that moment, we're like, whoa, you know, we catch ourselves red handed. We catch ourselves. And therefore, you know, there's the freedom. Oh, I can investigate this moment. Mm. And I, and that means kind of tracing this contraction, this me feeling, this, right back to its root, which more often than not is a, a feeling, a fear, or a, f a kind of root feeling, yeah. a root feeling of separation. So, so it's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one solution that came to mind as you were speaking is that it, it really is valuable to have a, uh, 
A good compass. A good compass. It's it's valuable also to have a teacher and a sangha who can who can call you on your shit. You know, if you, yeah, if if you're getting carried away. Yes, yes. If you're if you have responsibility and you're a teacher, yeah, it's very important that you have some kind of reference and that or that your sangha can, as you say, call you on yeah. your shit. Because if you don't have that, people can get quite can go quite far off the beam before they somehow have a wake up call. Yeah. Uh, here's a question that somebody just sent in. Let me read it to you. Hi, Alan. Many speakers talk about the necessity of placing attention on uncomfortable feelings and contractions in the body in order to heal them. But I have found this practice to be counterproductive and even damaging to my nervous system. For even if we think we are doing this compassionately, without judgment, this type of attention carries the ego's intention to change and fix, which is, in itself, an act of violence and contradictory to healing. Moreover, my experience has been that so much focus on, quote, somatic contractions, unquote, actually perpetuates these sensations until they become all that we notice, betraying the truth that they are only a small fragment of experience. What are your thoughts about this? It's a great question. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So you can indulge I, in it too I mean, much. I like what you say about the violence, I think you used, the questioner used the word violence and how, and agendas, and I think that um, if there's an agenda, it's a form of violence with the body, and in the approach that, that I, I share, and that Francis, and the, the Kashmir approach, it's a very non-violent approach, it's, um, you're right, there isn't really a focusing in areas of contraction, it's more a global welcoming of the body mm. and the world and everything but then when you do start to focus on the body you know you're kind of offering the body to presence and of course sometimes you might become aware of areas of tension and contractions and it might be that the invitation of the moment is to allow that sensation to unfold it's a subtle balancing like you're not you're not expecting the sensation to go away you're really seeing it clearly for what it is and your interest is in awareness, in spaciousness, in the openness. Um, so the byproduct of a, such a nonviolent approach, you could say, is often relaxation, but there isn't an agenda for things to, to relax necessarily. Yeah, you know, this question plays right into the question I was asking you, which is this sort of balance between individual intention and cosmic will. If we, I'm using cosmic yeah. will as a general phrase, I think people understand what I mean by that. But um, you know, her, this person's inquiry has to do with the individual ego's intention to change and fix, to use the questioner's exactly. exact words, where one is applying individual will. And to me, that's like almost in the same ballpark as individually having to make our heart beat and our blood circulate and our liver do its thing, you know, which we would die if we had to do that. Whereas there are kind of more deeper, there are deep, there's a deeper intelligence which conducts those processes. And I think yes. there, there can also, and that same deeper intelligence can conduct this process of purification that you're... Without anybody... Yeah, without our individual manipulation being involved. In a way, the in individual manipulation is yet another tension that is also a sensation in the body. It's a kind of doing tension, which itself will, in the best of cases, be welcomed welcomed in the sense of just allowed but as you say Rick, our true nature is by definition allowing at every moment and therefore doesn't need to do anything all right we had a bit of an interruption there but 
we're talking about how one can exacerbate, uh, the questioner was asking, one, one can exacerbate sort of individual discomforts and stuck things if one is using one's personal will to root them out. It's almost like that to which we give our attention grows stronger in our life. Whereas I think you're talking about a, a very different process which might easily be confused with that in which we're surrendering to something much larger than our individuality and that kind of has natural purifying tendencies which take care of it for us if we surrender to it properly. Yeah, it takes care of, of the part of a contraction that is egoic, mm -hmm. like the me part of a feeling in the body. Once we take our stand as this infinite, open, welcoming awareness, eventually the body relaxes. The me part of the tension goes back to the real me, to, to presence. So, But that doesn't mean that there might not be chronic tensions in the body that's still floating around. They're just sensations, and some might be less pleasant than others, but they're just sensations. But if it's a psychological contraction, and if you approach that psychological contraction with a kind of focus and a kind of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to welcome that somatic tension, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to welcome it, that's just superimposing yet another layer of tension. That's not very welcoming. As, as Francis says, that's like you're just standing behind the door with a 4 by 5 waiting to plonk the sensation. <laughs> it's, yeah. You have an agenda, and an agenda, as this person points out, is the form of, of meddling with experience. There's that bumper sticker, let go and let God. Yeah, that's nice. So some people might be hearing this and thinking, all right, I got that point. You should... You know, if you're really surrendered to the, the to your true nature, and then things are going to kind of work themselves out in a, a way that is far more wise and effective than anything your individual will would be able to accomplish. But that kind of begs the question: How do you surrender to your true nature? I mean, mo a lot of people might out there listening to this might feel like I, I understand that, but it, I don't ha think it hasn't happened. Well, how do I get in touch with it? It hasn't happened for me yet. How do I make that happen? Keep looking. Because you shouldn't surrender to your true nature if you haven't... Found it. Yeah. yeah. Why would you? That would be blind surrender. But if you're really interested in who am I, what am I, am I this body-mind? If there's a real interest in that, then one must pursue it. Or not one must, but one would. <laughs> yeah. And if it's a real interest, there will be answers. There's good teaching out there, and I can give a few recommendations. <laughs> sure. There's you, there's no. Rupert, there's Francis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and some other um, good people but then, sc and scattered then, and all then, around. But one must stay looking and investigating and asking questions until those questions are, are met. And then, it's not and then, it's not sequential like that, but the surrendering is has to be into, towards something that is that is trustworthy and true one might lose sight of, but yet one knows, without the shadow of a doubt, one knows. Even if at times it's out of sight, it's out of reach, seems to be. It's the one thing you know for sure, somehow. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and over time, it becomes less and less out of sight, out of reach. Yes. So how would you reconcile, seek and ye shall find, knock and the door shall be opened, with the sort of give up the search crowd and you don't need a teacher crowd? I don't try to reconcile that. 
Well, in other words, I you're, you're probably saying you disagree with that crowd and, and you know, seeking well, you shall find. If they're not seeking, then that's fine. Good for them. But if you're seeking, then it's good to seek. And yes, you should, you should, you should, you should find. As long as there's a seeker there, you can't pretend there isn't a seeker there. And as long as there's a sense of, of a limited me that yet has an intuition that there's a bigger truth, there's something more, there's a possibility for freedom. It's so important to really go for that and, and not listen to the whatever teaching tells you nothing, no one there, nothing to do before that's really recognized to be true. No, no, keep looking. As long as there seems to be someone there, um, then that someone should be doing something. Good. Towards. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you. <laughs> so, so be true to yourself. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, because it's so miraculous when you are true to yourself, you know, life meets you, meets itself. Truth is met by truth. And, mm. and of course, when we say these things, it sounds so beautiful. And, but that doesn't mean that it's not a journey, a real process, and uh, at times uh, difficult, painful. Uh, but yet, looking back on it, you think, wow, what intelligence. Here's a nice phrase I found in, in what you wrote. As we travel in and through the dark unknown, we may emerge back into the light of wholeness. This can only happen through our bodies. Did I write that? You did, yeah. But, uh, uh, unless you plagiarized you, it, I don't know. Years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was years ago. I'm not ago. sure I would agree with I mean, it's a nice, it's true, but it's uh, not, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I actually should have, I was getting distracted by your little quotes here, but I should have picked up on what you just said, which is beautiful, which is, it's a journey. And... Uh, and it's, you know, it's an adventure and it's never-ending fascination as far as I'm concerned. It's like, you know, you might, you might give up the search, but boy, you don't give up the exploration and the adventure. Well, there, I, I, there was a quote that Rupert and I found in the book, and I can't remember the book, so I don't know who said this, but it, 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 was, it was a beautiful quote, and it goes something like, first, first we journey towards God, and then we journey in God. Nice, very nice. It's nice, because it's so true, isn't it? So, yeah. Love that. And then we journey as God. Yeah. <laughs> Could add that. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been doing that all along, thinking that we were doing those other things. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. So, uh, Dan, if there's any more questions that have come in, now would be the time to send them to me. This is a typical question that I always ask towards the end of interviews, which is, and with some people, when I ask this question, well, basically the question is, you know, how do you see the cutting edge of your evolution now? What does the next horizon seem to be? Or what have the recent horizons been? And some people look at me puzzled because they're of the, the sort of I'm done ilk. And uh, so that question doesn't get us very far. But in your case, you seem to have this sense of, you know, never-ending unfoldment. And also, what are some areas in which you feel that you know, you've been blossoming in recent months or years and that you look forward to continue to blossom in? Perhaps in sharing this understanding and especially with the what's so-called yoga, the awakening body sessions that I offer. I, I feel that I really enjoy those and that I want to give my energy to those. And but in your own personal so, experience, how, how do you but feel But I think like that it is, it is because I've always been a bit lacking in confidence and a little bit shy, not shy, so craving, uh -huh. and, but, but a little bit shy to really give, not shy, but it was difficult for me to manifest. So I think that the teaching, the next unfolding or the unfolding is 
taking me out into the world a bit more. So it's relevance in that way. Yeah, that was, that's what comes to mind. Good. Well, this interview may help in terms of people usually experience what I call the bat gap bump. Yes, uh, I've heard you use that experience. <laughs> you know, and, and so let's say people feel a resonance with you and like what you've been saying in this interview. In, in what ways can they get involved with you? Well, I guess they can come. I do teach in. Well, no, I teach. I teach also in in America and, mm -hmm. and in other countries in Europe. And I have a website, so they can go check on my websites, or they can come to Oxford or London. We actually have a <laughs> thing on Batgap under the past interviews menu where teachers such as yourself can, and many have, put in places where they are going to be teaching. Or, oh, okay. And That's and good. then a person could search, let's say, and. Fresno or whatever, wherever, uh, or California, they could yeah. broaden it out to the whole state. And then they can say, yeah. oh, all these people are going to be teaching in this, that, and the other city. Right. So we'll send okay. you information on how to register for that. And, and people who are listening could can check that out and find out what might be going on in their area. Great. Hmm. Thank you. Sure. So good. Let me, let me kind of wrap it up. Um, unless you can think of anything else we haven't covered that you'd like to uh, throw in there. I think we've talked a lot. <laughs> okay, good. I always enjoy making these interviews long because it's so much fun talking to people like you. It's I just really nice. want to do it all day, you know? That's great. Because yeah. you, you have time. You give time for real, real conversations. Yeah, yeah. And no commercials. Yeah. <laughs> Except those annoying little YouTube ads that come up. Okay, so I've been speaking with Ellen Emmett. This interview, as most of you watching or listening probably know, is part of an ongoing series. So. If you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and there's a past interviews menu where you'll see all the past interviews organized or categorized in about four or five different ways, alphabetical, chronological, and so on. Check that out. Um, there is an audio podcast of this that almost as many people listen to the, to the audio recordings as watch the videos. And there's a, a whole page on how to sign up for that. You'll see it there. If you look under the upcoming interviews menu, especially, yeah, the upcoming interviews menu, you, you'll see this thing I referred to earlier of the live streaming and uh, links to the live streaming for each one and uh, a form at the bottom through which you can submit questions. There's a donate button, which we rely upon people clicking if they feel they've, they're deriving value from this and uh, it helps to support it. And there's also a little link to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. So you'll see that. So thanks for listening or watching. And thank you, Ellen. Thank you very much. Say hi to Rupert. We'll see you both in October at the same yeah. conference. Good. And uh, my next interview won't be a week from today. It'll be two days from today with Ama Sri Karunamai, who's a, a saint from India, and that got organized sort of on the spur of the moment and should be quite different from many of my interviews and I think quite fascinating. So uh, stay tuned for that. So see you then. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Ellen. Bye, Rick. Bye. Lovely. Bye.